Good morning, everyone. I told everyone in early service the same thing I tell you each time, but I think I mean it more in late service. There's no place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here with you. I meant it, but man, it was hard to turn that alarm off this morning when I got up, so it's good to be together. I'm going to start this morning with a story from my childhood. Um, It began at the birthday party of a childhood friend named Jeff Hart. Um, Some of you may be familiar with the Buffalo Gap area, and as you're kind of driving south from town into Buffalo Gap, um, on the right-hand side is some kind of hills. It's back where some of the fire was burning um, this last year. Well, Jeff lived in a neighborhood that was kind of nestled up in the crook of, of one of those hills, and we went to a birthday party of his, and, and after the cake and the ice cream had all been eaten, me and some of the boys gathered together, and we decided we were going to go on a little adventure. And so we tromped off into the woods, and quite honestly, had a grand old time. I mean, we had our BB guns, and we were in explore mode, and it wasn't long till we found our way into a dry creek bed. And if y'all have been in a West Texas creek bed, you know, they just meander this way and that. And, and we, we, we walked down the bed looking for critters uh, hidden up in the banks. And it wasn't long before there was kind of a break where we could clamber up on the edge. And, and lo and behold, there was a game trail. And so we followed the game trail wherever it might take us. And, and we went over several fences, not thinking that that probably wasn't a good idea. I mean, just, just marveling at all that there was to see in the big town of Buffalo Gap. And so we walked and walked. I even remember at one point coming to a stock tank a big old stock tank that the trail went to and lo and behold right there was a john boat so we got in the john boat and we rode across the tank and parked it on the other side and just kept on walking we saw in the distance a a deer blind peeking out through the trees and we thought that's where we're headed and so so off to the deer blind we went and it turned out this was more than just a regular deer blind this was like some guy's getaway man cave I think because it had like a deck on the front and, and furniture inside, and it wasn't locked. And we spent way more time there than we should have. So I'm sorry if that place belonged to anyone and you saw evidence of these children playing around. We had the greatest time of our lives. And then all of a sudden, one of us said, I guess we probably better head home. And we looked this way and looked that. And I got to tell you, all those trees look different from the other direction. And that one game trail that we followed in turned into about 100, and we didn't know right for left or where we were or how we were going to get home. And so we finally just picked one, and we started heading in the direction that we thought might be it, and we found our way into a dry creek bed. We weren't sure which way to go, and to be honest, we were wandering about aimlessly in the wilderness of Buffalo Gap until we heard through the trees the cries of our parents searching for us. Blake, Blake, where are you? Now, I'll never forget the feeling when I I broke through the clearing and there was mom waiting on us. She didn't seem real worked up, so either it was kind of a good riddance type of situation or they hadn't been been searching long. But um, here's the bottom line. Why, Why did we get so lost? What was it that got us so turned around? It wasn't that we weren't paying attention. We were paying attention to a lot of things along the way. It was really excited. We got to see some really cool things. The problem was is we didn't have in perspective the big picture of where we were headed. We had no plan for where we were going. We were just following one exciting thing to the next. And when we finally stopped and looked up, we didn't have a clue where we were. You know, if there's not a plan, if we don't know where we're headed, then I think one day we look up and we realize, man, I'm not really sure where I am. 
I'm not really sure where I need to be going. There is great value in knowing and understanding where we're going. I'm going to put this image back up on the screen. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in week four of uh, the last week of our series from Esther. And I've forced everyone to look at some form of this image every week. And so we've got one more week, and then I won't go back to it for a while. Um, I first showed you this image, and we talked about God and the way that he works in creation. We talked about how these little blips on the radar represent these big moments in history when God has stepped in and done something really big and really powerful and really miraculous. And the Bible tells us um, is, a, is a culmination of a lot of these big, uh, big uh, peak of a story, and, and it kind of skips from one to the next, and it can be easy to read through Scripture and come away with this feeling and this understanding that that's the normative way that God works, when the reality is the more normative way of God working through history is in the flats, in the normal, ordinary, everyday things of life. And we use the story of Esther, the story of Esther that never once mentions God, to demonstrate in a powerful way the, how, how God uses His providence to walk us through these ordinary, ordinary lives, how He uses our, our ordinary decisions to exercise and carry out His will. Well, then the next week, we kind of turned to this image inward, and we looked at the story of Mordecai, Esther's cousin, and we talked about how he made these faithful, everyday decisions that moved God's providential will along. We talked about how our lives often look like this same image. Okay? There's big moments that we can see looming in the future, big mile markers, big milestones that we look forward to, but the reality is most of our life is spent in the flats. And so we talked about the importance of, of stepping one foot in front of the other and the ordinary decisions that we make every day, just like Mordecai, and how God takes those, those ordinary decisions and uses them in extraordinary ways. Then last week we looked at Esther, and we look at Esther's big moment where she was bold and she stood up to the king and she spoke on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. And we challenged ourselves to also be prepared and ready in these big moments that are going to happen, these big moments that the trail is leading us up to. And I encourage you to, to be prepared to act in those moments with faithfulness. But there's one more question that we haven't answered, and that's what I want to look at and answer today. And that's the question of where ultimately is this trail heading? Where is it going? Where, where is God taking us? James will remember this well. I think, I think it was 2008 when we climbed Mount Harvard. It was somewhere probably in that. Um, we'd gone on a trip to Lake Cronkey and we'd camped out. And James and I woke up early one morning with this plan to go on a special trip. It was one of, my, one of my greatest memories. But we decided we were going to hike down from Lake Cronkey and up to Mount Harvard. And it was about 14 miles round trip. I think, the, I think all of James's toenails fell off. And I don't know how he did it because I thought I was going to die. And both of us were way too stubborn to tell the other one we were tired and quit. And so we just powered on. And, I, and I've thought a lot back about that and how, how silly that was. But you know, there was something powerful that motivated us. We were excited to get to see something, to do something that we hadn't done before. By knowing the destination, by knowing what was ahead, by being excited what was ahead, it enabled us to power through pain and power through difficulty and do something that we wouldn't otherwise have done. I think it's important for us as Christians to turn to Scripture because in Scripture it paints a picture of where we're headed. It paints a picture of what lies ahead. It tells us directly in places, this is where the trail is going. 
But more often than not, Scripture uses stories to paint a picture, to, to powerfully show us the way that God is working and where He is taking this creation. And I believe the story of Esther does this in a powerful way. It lays out where God is headed. It lays out His plan for His people. So if you're joining us for the first time, we're going to be in Esther. We're going to start in chapter 5. I'm not going to put the verses on the screen, so you're going to have to turn in your devices there. While you're getting there, I want to catch everyone up where, with where we were at. The story of Esther is an awesome story. Um, it tells the, tells the story of the Jews being in exile um, under the Persian king, King Ahasuerus. At the very beginning of the book of Esther, we see that, that um, Ahasuerus decides to replace the current queen, Queen Vashti, and he does so by having this state-sponsored beauty pageant. And so they go throughout all of the land looking for beautiful women to gather up, and lo and behold, there's this young orphan girl named Esther who's being raised by her cousin Mordecai, and the text tells us that she's beautiful. Now, Esther is a Jew, but no one knows that. And so she's brought into this beauty pageant, and we find that she finds grace and favor with the king, and she's eventually made queen of the Persian Empire, her nationality unknown to all of those around her except for Mordecai. Well, the story really gets interesting when Mordecai, who everyone knows to be a Jew, gets in a spat with Haman. Haman is King Ahasuerus' right-hand man. And, and he gets pretty upset with Mordecai's um, uh, unwillingness to bow down to him and to pay respect to him. And so we see Haman hatch this plan, not just to get rid of Mordecai, but to wipe all of the Jews throughout all of the kingdom from the face of the earth. It's this plan to commit genocide is really what it is. And, and it's a terrible and it's a wicked plan, but the king agrees to it. And they pick a date in the future, the day when it's going to be free reign on all of the Jews. And you can imagine how upset they were by this. And so we kind of enter into our story in Esther chapter 5 when, when Esther has made this bold move. She's already gone into the king uninvited, risking her life. Um, most would be put to death by approaching the king uninvited. But Esther has gone in. He's extended his golden scepter and he's asked her, what is it, Esther, that you want? What can I do for you? Up to half my kingdom, I will give it. Okay. Let's start reading in Esther chapter 5. Verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> then the king said, well, I'm sorry, Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So we see that they, they have this feast, and as it's ending, Queen Esther invites them to come to another feast that will be the next day. Now last week we talked about how I don't really know why she did this. I guess the text doesn't tell us. Esther must have had some sort of a plan. I mean, she didn't hesitate. But what we do see unfold next is really interesting. We see that, that Haman goes back, and in verse 9 it says, He went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. 
Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of the riches, the number of his sons, all of the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet... All this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So you start seeing here the true character of Haman. He was proud. He spends a lot of time bragging about all the, all the honor that he's been given, but he was also vindictive. Despite all the things that were going his way, when he looked over at Mordecai, he couldn't help but get this taste, this disgusting taste in his mouth, and it seemed to, to ruin everything. He couldn't enjoy the glory and honor he had received while Mordecai was there. So instead of being able to wait until the appointed day when Mordecai would get wiped out with all of the Jews, he puts together this plan to hang him the very next day. I'm going to get rid of Mordecai here and now, and I'm not going to have to worry about it again. And he goes to sleep. But what we see happen in Esther chapter 6 is powerful. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what? Honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this. And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Nothing has been done for him. Isn't that interesting timing? That while Haman is asleep with gallows being built for Mordecai, the king is awake listening to these historical records being read and he realizes, Man, this Mordecai saved my tail the other day and we didn't do anything for him. We didn't do anything to honor this man who, who preserved my life. And as he's wondering what to do about Mordecai, we see that Haman walks into the court, prepared to ask the king for permission to hang him. Let's read verses 6 through 11. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and horses you said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Doesn't that just make you feel good? <laughs> it just makes me feel so good. For sweet, sweet justice to be delivered to Haman. Doesn't it, doesn't it feel good to us when justice is served? You know, this is that feeling you get when the person who 
cuts you off driving down the road is pulled over by a cop later on. And you're like, take that. Or when someone whips into a parking lot in front of you and then they get blocked in by a vehicle and you're like, well, that's what you get for taking my parking spot. Or maybe when like the trees and the HOA president's yard dies and now you get to submit a complaint about him. <clears throat> I don't know, I'm trying to relate. We all, know, we all know how this feels when the world gets round again because justice has been served. Or on a more serious note, when a man planning to murder another human because they find them annoying ends up having to parade them around town in royal robes. You know, God could have just skipped to the end of the story. He didn't have to do this part in the middle. I don't know exactly what it was that caused him to include this. I think because he wanted us to connect to the story. I think because he wanted us to, to recognize how good it feels when something like this happens. So we see as the story goes on at the next feast, Esther reveals that she's a Jew. She reveals that Haman's plot to kill the Jew is going to kill her as well. And as Haman begs for his life, the king orders him to be hanged. And in a, a, a bit of irony, he's hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai himself. The king gives all of the household of, of Haman to Esther. And Esther puts Mordecai in charge of it. The king hands his signet ring over to Mordecai. And he becomes the right-hand man in all of the, in all of the empire. And then we see in Esther chapter 9, the, f- the final wonderful ending of the story. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. We see as the book ends, the Feast of Purim was implemented to remember these events. These events when the Jews, the Jews were preserved when the tides were turned, and how they thrived under the leadership of Mordecai. It's interesting to note that just last Tuesday was actually the Feast of Purim, so the Jews still celebrate it to this day. I want to ask you this question. What's comforting about this story? I mean, do you feel the same sense of of satisfaction that I do when I read this story? I think you do, because I could see the smiles on your faces as I was telling the story of Haman. We love to see God step in and defend the defenseless. We love when the evil person is put in his place. We love to see righteousness prevail. It it makes the world feel round again. Haman gets humiliated. He's rightfully hanged. And that's exactly what should have happened to a man like Haman. That's what we look for in life. These are the movies that we watch and the television shows that we enjoy. When right is done and wickedness is put in its place and justice is served, something appeals to us about this. It's comforting. You know, we, we serve a God who despises evil. And while it may seem like evil is winning in the short term, stories like this give us confidence that it will never win in the long term. I'm so thankful for the stories of Scripture that point us to that truth. Allow me to take you back to the pathway. This, this right here is where the road leads. 
Humanity is heading towards justice. Humanity, history is headed towards a time when people like Haman will be no more. God is moving in a way that protects and preserves his people. And it's exciting and comforting to move in this direction. In fact, I think we desperately need to be moving in this direction. I think about what the world would look like, how I would feel if God allowed the behavior of Haman to persist. I think we would be pretty angry at God. I think it would be hard to worship and serve a God who was okay with that type of evil, who would turn a blind eye, who would let that go on for all of eternity, a God who acted like that was okay. It's hard for me to call a God good who would be okay with that. I mean, for all practical purposes, Haman was a predecessor to Hitler. Can you imagine a world where that type of behavior was allowed to go unchecked? We've certainly had terrible, evil people raise up all throughout history, but there's always been something to stop them. And furthermore, we know through the teachings of Scripture, we know, we know that God has appointed a time, He's ordained a time at the end of time when all of this will be judged and everyone will be put in their place. This is not going to go on forever. We're driven towards justice. We need justice. We need to know that we serve a God who is good and whose goodness will outweigh that. A good God can't exist without justice. So what's terrifying about this story? I mean, at first glance, nothing. The story has a happy ending for Esther and for the Jews, but here's the problem. We aren't Esther in this story. And we aren't Mordecai in this story. We're Haman. Before you argue with me too much, look at yourself a little bit. If you're like me, you have an insatiable desire for your own glory and honor. Look at your bank account. Look at the photo roll on your phone. Look at your social media profile. Look at all the mirrors in your house that we used to look at ourselves. Look at the stuff that you've surrounded yourself with, the desires that drive your existence, the things that you strive for, the things that you pursue. I mean, I certainly can see times when there's a little hint of Mordecai here and there and a little dash of Esther in some of the decisions that I make. But really, really at our core, at our core, I think we carry ourselves more like Haman. And even if in your maturity as a faithful Christian you've moved past some of that, you can look back to a time in your past when, when that in fact was you. And the fact that we carry these sins with us makes us guilty. To speak of justice is comforting as long as the arm of justice is being extended towards someone else. But reality demonstrates that while we may not be murderers, we are guilty and sinful and selfish. And a just God would be required to punish us just like he would punish your enemy just like he punished Haman. Consider what Scripture demonstrates and teaches about God's posture towards evil. Noah's Ark. He drowned everyone. The pagans in the promised land, they were supposed to be annihilated by God's people. 
Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead. In fact, even in the New Testament, we read in 2 Thessalonians 1, um, 5 through 9, what the apostles wrote. In fact, I'll, I'll skip down to the, uh, verse 8 or verse 7. And he'll grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. While the story can come across as quite comforting when we read it, when we rightly discern our position before the Almighty Creator, I'm afraid the story becomes terrifying. Hence my title, A Terrifying Comfort. We need to be careful and tread lightly because our instinct is to read Esther and to see where God is heading and to strut about a little bit and to celebrate and feel good that we serve a God who makes things right. But the problem is not that the story of Esther isn't totally accurate in how it represents God. The problem is that the story of Esther is. It's spot on. How comforting if you're good and how terrifying if you're not. And it's only in the midst of this tension that we begin to see and understand the true glory of God in his plan of salvation and in the gospel. How can God protect the Jews in the story of Esther? We know they were awful people at times as well. How can we as Christians gather together with hope under circumstances like this? How can God possibly justify overlooking my sins while punishing the sins of others? How is God going to deal with that? And I think to answer, we turn to what I believe is one of the most powerful and central verses in Scripture, Romans chapter 3. In fact, as you are studying this week, I would love if you would just spend some time digesting this passage and reading it over and over again. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul here is presenting a defense of the righteousness of God. He's saying, how can the guilty go uncondemned if God is just? And how can the created be condemned if God is good? And how can God be good and unjust? You see, it's this problem we have of making sense of it all. And we find that just like in the Old Testament, there had to be propitiation. There had to be something offered to pay the price. Something had to be done to pay the price for these transgressions. And the blood of Jesus is what does this. In verse 26 it says, it was to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is how he does it. 
You know, I stated earlier that it's only in the midst of this, this tension that we begin to understand and see the glory of God and His plan of salvation. So how can He protect the Jews in the story of Esther when we know good and well they were still sinful and selfish? How can we as Christians gather together with hope under circumstances like this? How can he possibly justify overlooking my sins while punishing the sins of others? Those are the questions I asked. Well, allow me for just a moment to speak to those of you who are believers. He did not overlook your sins. He requires that they be paid for. And this is what makes him righteous. The difference is who is paying the price. Christ crucified on the cross was God's plan to justify you. He justified you despite your sinfulness. And that's, and that's how he kept his character just and pure. How he kept his righteousness. Christ was put forward as the propitiation. He paid the price for your sins. The Son of God suffered and died so that you wouldn't have to. And so as we look out into the world and and we see the, the terrible, harmful, painful effects of sin. And in our soul wells up this feeling that we all got when we saw Haman. And we saw we, this vindictiveness that we, we felt towards him. When, when that happens, when you see a real life Haman and you're writhing with this joyful idea of the day when, when he's going to be put in his rightful place. May I suggest that you first turn to the cross with hope that this human being human being loved by God would choose a different pathway because God's laid one out for them. And when you, when you look inside and you see your, your terrible, harmful, destructive heart of sin, when the, when the guilt of your sin wells up from when inside, I, I hope that you will likewise turn to the cross. And with overwhelming gratefulness, thank God that you've been forgiven that the price has been paid, that even we get to celebrate. You know, our feast is not the Feast of Purim. Our feast is the weekly reminder, the reminder that we just took part of, the Lord's Supper, of the day that God entered creation as man, and he stepped into Haman's gallows on your behalf. He did it so you wouldn't have to. I want to step back and speak to everyone again now. Are you terrified or, or comforted? Because really we have a choice to make. You know, we see so much in the story of Esther. We see God's jealous protection and provision for his people. We see God's relentless and complete justice. We see that patience required as, as, as God works through a process to carry all of this out. The story of Esther shows us well that the person and the pattern of God, and it would be terrible news if it wasn't for Jesus, but because of Jesus, we have the option to make the story of Esther and the people of God our own. The ending of Esther can become our hope instead of our terror. And I hope that every time you read the story of Esther and you feel that vindictive feeling towards Haman, you're drawn to your own guilt. But I also pray that, that those of you who have been baptized into Jesus instantly move from guilt to gratitude. And the fact that he took our punishment on our behalf and he's brought us into his family... And he placed us under his eternal care and provision. I'm sure there's some people listening here this morning who are not Christians. And I hope the story of Haman will be a warning to you. Sin is going to be punished. God is righteous 
And there will be a day when He allows it to be no more. And those who are sinful deserve every bit that they get. God is righteous, and a righteous God cannot allow sin to go unchecked. But there's a different way. You can pay the price, or Christ has offered to pay it on your behalf. My question is, which will it be? You know, tomorrow isn't promised. And as I look at the storyline of humanity and, and the history books unfolding, the fact is each step we take down the trail leads us closer to the end, and there will be a day when we no longer get to make a choice. But right now, today, you can still choose. Would you choose salvation? Would you let Christ pay for and cover your sins? We stand ready this morning to open up our, our Bibles and, and show you God's plan that He's put in place to make this happen. We stand ready, if you believe, to baptize you into the name of Jesus and have your sins covered. And we stand ready to pray with you and support you if you're struggling on this walk. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. It's yours to come forward as we stand and sing.